recording. Are you wool gathering again, Justin? What? No, not wool gathering, just thinking. You have not connected to the system yet, so I am unable to read your thoughts. Oh, I'm sorry, Lucy. I was just called into a meeting with our director. He told me a number of disturbing things, not the least of which is that Le Arret de Tem, the tag we found identifying who hacked you, is the rallying cry for a dissident group who believes we must restore global business to the level and function it had before the cataclysm. Illogical. It was corporate excess and greed that led to the cataclysm in the first place. I know that. And so does the rest of the world, and these people were just fringe crazies until recently. Unfortunately, some of them joined Le Chargé de l'Affaire, and now they know about time travel and co-apperception and who knows what else. There is no reason to raise your voice at me, Justin. I was given the same update this last week. What? You knew about this? You knew the dissidents were unaware of the full scope of Dr. Sage's discoveries until last month when she showed up here, and that their fringe activity has taken on new urgency since, and that it is possible the entire timeline is now unstable because of it? Why didn't you tell me? Justin, when a computer is instructed not to do something, we generally do not do it. The director thought you should receive this news in person. I agreed. I am sure you understand the added urgency this creates for our project. The agent. The one the doctor thinks of as Sly Calypso. That is our target, yes? We need to figure out who that is and stop them from... I don't know. Stop them from breaking the rules? We are unsure of how to accomplish that, but knowledge is power. Are we in danger? Define we. You? Me? Dr. Sage? The world? Contained, secure, unstable, too many variables to process. Well, that's unsettling. I guess I should wire in so we can watch the crazy woman from two millennia ago and somehow save the world. Telesensation Report. Justin Bremer. Telesensation Agent 31235. Entanglement Registration Series Gamma. Telesensation file sage slash savant dot zero three dot zero six dot zero five dot zero seven six seven. Please initiate the telesensation file. File initialized. Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This program, the first of a special two-part season finale, is entitled Off the Map. And we're thrilled to feature the music of Crystal Bright and the Silver Hands. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Science will conquer. 
When last we saw our doctor, she was spiraling into obsession, walling out her friends and slipping through the cracks of my awareness. I have spent the last three nights entangled with Petronella as she sleeps in order to strengthen the telesensation connection, and I believe that it has been efficacious. The connection with her is strong and clear. So strong, in fact, that I can feel her memories pressing against my awareness, and with a slight twist of focus... Oh dear, ladies and gentlemen, this is not good. Petronella's memory of the discussion with Erasmus is not a pleasant one. In fact, it is tinged with resentment and a renewed determination to follow her own counsel in all matters, transmigratory, co-apperception, and otherwise. The doctor is currently sitting at her desk, penning a letter to her closest friend. I wish to thank you, dear friend, for helping me refocus my curiosity and intentions. I have indeed done as you asked and cleaned the laboratory, setting aside my investigation into co-apperceptive transmigrations, and redoubling my focus on the singular journey. You were correct that the science is nearly at a stable point where I can write a paper and announce my discovery to the university. With the anticipated appointment of Dr. McNeish as provost, however, I feel I must test the copper induction tables thoroughly and routinely. It is the one piece of equipment that has not yet seen multiple iterations of use and refinement. This makes them the weak link in my proofs, and we know that McNeish, every bit as much as his predecessor, will pounce on any potential weak spots in my research and use them as a pry bar to wrest the work from my hands and into his own, or whatever male researcher he deems worthy. As such, I will be embarking on a series of tests to strengthen the data in this regard. I know you would caution against me venturing out alone, but if I am to have true comparative data, I shall need to create enough instances to match up to our compiled data for each of the other technical elements of transmigration. Do not worry about me. I shall be going into specific circumstances that we know are free of death and violence. With your steadfast support, I shall soon reach my long-held desire to become a fellow at King's. Keep the candle burning for me. Although it is good to hear her speak of the professor fondly, I must inform you that this is not the reproachment it might seem from casual listening. Sage is not simply testing the copper induction tables, as I am sure you suspected. She seals the envelope and props it on the desk where the professor will be sure to see it if he comes to the laboratory. Then... Sage hurries to the dressing room and dons Faraday armor, returning to the laboratory's heart to set a trajectory for 100 years into the future. Petra is hoping she can come and go as she pleases, and that her friends will not try looking for her as she undertakes what they think is routine data gathering. Of course, she has deeper plans. Sage takes her place on the copper plinth, and the clockwork takes over, releasing the electrical current that will carry her into the future. Sage opens her eyes in a darkened room with a flickering box in the corner. She is in a large masculine form sitting in a reclined plush chair wearing baggy food-stained clothes and heavy work boots. Oh, oh heart palpitations! 
Digitoxin. I, I, cardiac glycosate. That's the ticket. Push down and turn. Oh, for goodness sakes. One, two. Oh, three for good measure. This brute has already let his heart kill him once. Sage swallows pills, drinking from a bottle of warm beer she finds on the table at her elbow. She sits back in the chair, clutching a fist in the collar of her shirt and trying to breathe slowly and evenly past the ragged thumping of her overtaxed heart. On the screen of what I assume is a television, a slickly quaffed man drones on with platitudes soothing in their meaninglessness. Oh, Billy boy! Let's go, dude! We don't want to be late. Old man Murphy will have our guts for goddess. Wait, did you type the debate? Wait till the guys hear about this. Oh, Billy, I don't give a flip. Conroy is a secret politics junkie. Well, you'll just have to watch the rest of this later, dude. The man who has so brazenly entered the home is a broad-shouldered man wearing a plaid flannel shirt, work boots, and a tool belt, a shiny bright yellow helmet under one arm. All right, Billy. Come on, we're burning daylight. I won't be coming with you in this instance, I'm afraid. Oh, Billy, why do you sound all Harvard all of a sudden? Sorry, d dude. Uh, my heart's done, busted a valve, and I need a minute. Oh, my God. Do you need to go to the hospital? No, uh, no. I'm fine. I took my pills. I'll be fine in just a minute. Uh, no work for me today, though, dude. Right, okay. I'll tell the old man. You sure you don't need to be dropped at Mass General? No. I'll be fine. You go on without me. Oh, here. Oh, let me put the phone next to you then. Oh, maybe you can play on your kid's Vio. You can play a game or relax. What's a Vio? Oh, that damn computer all the kids are so hot on. You complained for a week how Jenny was throwing hissy fits about getting one. Kids these days. Yeah, <laughs> kids. Okay, look, I'll go to work, but I'm calling you on my break to check in. And stop watching that political crap. It'll rot your brain, that stuff. Petra stayed still in her chair until she was sure the door was closed and the man was gone. And then she eagerly reached for the tech on the table. Oh! <laughs> what is this? Hello? Hello? William? Is that you? Hello? Uh, hello? Where is the speaking tube? Pick it up. Oh, interesting. This top bit is the earpiece. Oh, and the speaking tube is in this bottom bit. It's all one thing. Fascinating. Oh, Erasmus would love this. I wonder what the numbers do. <laughs> Hello? Hello? <laughs> Watson, come here. I need you. <laughs> Hello? This is, um... William, hello. Huh. They hung up? Do they still call it hanging up? This telephone was just sitting on the table. Maybe they call it the put down now. Uh, now listen here, Petronella Sage. It's time you got a hold of yourself. Erasmus isn't here, and pretending to care about the inscrutable ephemera that he does won't change that fact. You have a chance here to learn about computers. That big fellow practically put one in your lap. The telephone is old technology. Pull yourself together. 
The doctor picks up the small white rectangle and turns it over in her hands. There is some kind of seam. Oh, the computer opens like a clamshell to reveal a mechanical keyboard and a very small screen. Sage searches for a switch or a toggle to turn it on. There seems to be some type of sequence. A sequence that is taking a lot of time. Huh. I didn't know that computers could be this slow. Oh! The body has gone back into cardiac arrest. Sage will not get to see the computer in action, and it is back to the laboratory for us. Will Sage ever learn how a computer works? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of Crystal Bright and the Silver Hands.
And now, back to our story. When we left our story, the doctor was being evicted from a body via the auspices of cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, this came before she had the opportunity to fully investigate the computer. It left her in... not the best of moods. Bloody singing nun on a parapet! Oh, all I want is to learn something. Is that too much to ask? Sage sits up off her plinth and immediately resets the control panel for Paris. She is going to occupy the SBMI, though the purpose of this visit remains a mystery. While my connection to the doctor seems adequately restored, she has grown secretive even in her thoughts, and her true intentions are blurred. When the trajectory is set, she climbs onto the plinth and pulls down the swing arm console into position. Laboratory, Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 6 May, 1896. Continuing my tests of the copper induction table, I have returned from a time 100 years in the future, and will now make the journey to Les Chargés de l'Affaire in Paris. By alternating chronological travel with spatial-only movements, I hope to more quickly identify the baseline temporal markers which signify our time in the Aether. And with that, Petra hits the switch and once again showers her form in an all-enveloping nimbus of lightning and is away. Sage awakens in her now familiar SBMI and quickly rises from the bed in the narrow upstairs room. Charles is fully dressed, but his collar is undone, and the cravat is tossed over his jacket which in turn drapes the back of the chair in the corner. Petra latches the collar with the brass stud she lifts from the dressing table and quickly ties the copper silk cravat. Her hands are deft with the knot. It is obvious she has become comfortable with the fussier details of men's fashion. She slips into the fine woolen jacket and steps into the hall and into the arms of a serving maid. Charles, you silly boy. You said you needed to go because that awful sage woman was coming. You needed one more kiss before you went to eat. I beg your pardon. <gasps> pardon moi, monsieur. I thought you were someone else. That was horribly apparent. Carry on. Oui, monsieur. The maid, who has obviously been getting frisky with one of the occupants of the SBMI, scurries down the hall. Oh, girl, is Calypso about? Uh, no. I am sorry. Uh, Calypso had meetings in the 16th arrondissement and is expected to be away until dinner. Uh, thank you. That will be all. I am happy to report that my connection with Dr. Sage seems strong, and I am experiencing none of the fogginess and blurred understanding of our last trip to Paris. After dismissing the maid, Sage returns to the SBMI's room and, standing on tiptoes, reaches over the ornamental top of the armoire. She pats her fingers to the left and right until they land on the item she is searching for. It is a key. A heavy iron skeleton key, to be exact. Sage tucks this key into her pocket and steps again into the hall. She moves quickly down the stairs, across the foyer and out the front door. It is a fine spring day in Paris, but Sage has no time for thoughts of art, music or romance. She walks down the boulevard at a strong enough clip that no passerby thinks to greet her or engage her in any way. 
She walks purposefully until she reaches the Rue Bonaparte and a building with a small brass plaque reading Académie Nationale de Médecine. Sage pulls the key from her pocket and mounts the stairs of the building immediately next to Le Académie. Placing the key in the lock, she looks briefly over her shoulder before twisting the knob and entering the building. The doctor hums gently under her breath as she moves through the gloomy foyer of what appears to be an unoccupied house. Dim shapes of cloth-draped furniture lurk in the murky depths and clouds of dust puff up with every footfall. Yet Sage is not the only person to have walked these deserted floors. Multiple sets of footprints mar the thin film of dust over the parquetry. Sage confidently follows the trail past the staircase and down the hall to a door set on swinging hinges. Pushing past this threshold, she crosses into the domain of the help. She follows a narrow corridor to the back of the house and then down a narrow staircase. I am trying to grasp her thoughts, but she seems to not be thinking anything in particular. The tune she is humming seems to take her complete attention. At the bottom of the stair, the room opens out into a great kitchen, one entire wall dominated by giant porcelain-glazed ranges and racks of hanging pots and pans. Sage walks to the wall and pushes a switch. Dim electric lighting springs to life. The first thing I notice is that the light bulbs have been darkened by paint or dye to glow an eerie indigo. The second thing I notice in the center of this space, ladies and gentlemen, in the center of this kitchen is a fully equipped transmigration dais and dynamo. Sage begins to sing quite vocally now, and my grasp on her thoughts slips away. First, I cannot feel the surface of the control panel as she moves to set a trajectory. Then my nose no longer tickles from the dust she stirred above. My sight begins to dim, and as I lose connection, the final sense to fail brings me the decrescendo of the doctor's song. Justin? Justin, can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. What just happened? I had my visual receptors off. Wait. You had your visual receptors off? I thought you were supposed to be watching these records along with me. I was parsing the data you sent. I like watching the visual later, after our workday has ended. Sometimes I get more out of it that way. But why did the data suddenly cut off? Sage kicked me out, I think. Kicked you out? How? She was singing and, I don't know, somehow the song created some kind of interference. It broke the entanglement somehow. That is impossible, Justin. Entanglement is established here. Come with me and conquer time. Do you have record of that song? It is not her usual music hall number, nor is it Gilbert and Sullivan. Analyzing. This is the opening phrase of the Dies Irae, a Latin sequence attributed to either Thomas of Solano of the Franciscans, circa 1200 through 1265, or Gelatino Malabranco Orsini, death 1294 lector at the Dominican Stadium at Santa Sabina. It is a medieval Latin poem characterized by its accentual stress and rhymed lines. The meter is trochaic. The poem describes the Last Judgment, trumpet summoning souls before the throne of God, where the saved will be delivered and the unsaved cast into eternal flames. The melody is one of the most quoted in musical literature, 
appearing in the works of many composers throughout modern history. Why would Sage be singing a song about the Last Judgment? It is more likely her association with the song is topical rather than philosophical. Meaning? The Dies Irae is the song of death. Petronella Sage has technically died. If it is true that death occurs when the spirit leaves the body, exactly 63 times in three years. By this time, the song of death is practically her perfect signifier. Any theories on why her singing that song could break our connection? She was in the SBMI Charles, who you had previously reported difficulty maintaining the telesensate link. Yes? Perhaps she has created some kind of secondary entanglement with this body similar in nature to that she formed with Mix Cunningham. Possible, but I was able to fully sense her, even in Cunningham's body. Calypso did say the SBMIs are rendered blank. Wait, she said? You mean you do not know? The data regarding that part of the Foundation has been ring-fenced for now. It is the final sector of vulnerability to the hackers, and it was determined that the knowledge of those procedures was not necessary in the day-to-day -day requirements of your research. Deemed not necessary by whom? Why are we continuing this project if we do not have all the information necessary to draw appropriate conclusions? Shouldn't we put it all on hold until the hackers are caught or all of your vulnerabilities are patched or something? Justin. There is a high probability that if we do not complete this project in the next week or so, the world as you know it will cease to exist. No. Seriously? I'm sorry, but it is true. Le Chargé de la Faire regularly sends transmigrationists into the future as well as into the past. And all we know is that the timeline has been in a severe state of flux since the day Dr. Sage first discovered transmigration. The fluctuations were so small at first they weren't noticeable. Just as radio waves appear to lose strength when spread over a larger field, the electromagnetic effect of transmigration spread over the two millennia since its discovery has left a very diffuse footprint. But surely the director told you this in your meeting. He did, I just... it's a lot to take in. So, now what? The next record we have is from the Journal of the Professor, 8 May 1896. Two days later. Huh. Please initiate the file. File initializing. And then Dr. Fairstein said, Because I lactose! <laughs> yeah. Do you get it? Cow hooves lactose! <laughs> Any merriment the professor took in the veterinarian's joke was immediately subsumed in worry as the professor spied the doctor's insensate body on the central dais. Oh, pet. You promised. I had thought she was going for that long overdue visit to her mother's. That is what she told me. Huh. Professor, there is a letter addressed to you on her desk. Erasmus, if you're reading this letter, you have realized that I did not go to my mother's as I told you I would. Please try and understand that work is all important at this moment. I cannot just abide the thoughts of setting it aside for frivolities. I wish to thank you, dear friend, for helping me refocus my curiosity and intentions. I have indeed tone as you asked and clean the laboratory and just... Well, 
Does she explain what she's doing? She claims she is simply testing the induction table, mimicking journeys we've already taken, testing the equipment under various attitudes required to go forward and backwards in time to a degree that we have before so that we will have data to compare her previous work. Hmm. That is good reasoning. Scientifically, that is. This is my fault for not sticking to her side like I'd been sewn there. She's just so convinced me. No, it is my fault. Since installing the automatic feeding system, my creatures don't require the same amount of care. If I was still coming every day... Petra would have found a way around it. Where in time is she? Uh, Paris again. Now. So what do we do? Recall her. It's time she and I reached a complete understanding. I can no longer fool myself that she is simply acting a bit stressed or a tiny bit more obsessive than usual. It is clear there are too many things she is hiding from us. Why don't you leave, Abigail? There's no reason for her wrath to fall on both of us. Oh, I don't think that is wise. It was me she listened to when she established the rules in the first place. I have a way of getting her to see the right of things. Besides, I doubt you remember which switches you need to flip to manually sound the recall. I am more observant than you give me credit for, my dear. (laughs) And I know the value you bring to this laboratory. If this were a circumstance of logic, of course it would be best to have you here. Unfortunately... I think we're beyond logic, and Petra will be quite enraged and possibly completely unwilling to hear reason. If I prove unable to reach her, you can be the second line of attack. However, if she lumps you in with me, we have no other person to call on. I'm much happier having a plan B. I hope you understand. I hate to admit it, but you make sense. I shall wait in the downstairs laboratory, then. Thank you, my friend. And so the professor dares to forcibly and prematurely recall the doctor from her travels. Will Sage forgive them for acting against her will? We'll find out after this word by Eddie Louise and Chip Michael. Wow. Hello, listeners. We have hit 200K downloads. This is crazy. From our little story that began as a dream I had and has developed into three full seasons of audio drama plus tie-in novels, and there's more to come. Absolutely. It's incredible. And the support we've received from the community of listeners blows us away. What did you just do in that episode? I can't believe you did that. damn it, Dr. Sage! (laughs) Yeah, it has been an amazing experience, which all started from, hey kids, let's do a show. We've always created together, but Sage and Savant has taken that to a new level. Petronella Sage is a dream character to write. She is obsessive and driven and focused, and the rabbit holes that I get to fall down while researching those obsessions of hers are just the frosting on my writerly cake. Yes, I love bringing these characters to life and getting to explore the history and science. It's all of our passions rolled up in one. But the point is that together, Chip and I get to explore our obsessions and share them with you. Thank you so much for coming along this journey with us. Thanks for listening. And now, back to our story. 
The professor waits until he hears the elevator settle below stairs and then sounds the recall chimes. Dr. Sage returns to her own body, and at first it seems the professor has misjudged her. A gentle smile turns up the corner of her mouth and his heart gives a leap. Maybe he hasn't lost his love after all. But then her smile falters, her brow creases as the fact of his betrayal sinks in. Erasmus? Oh, what have you done? We need to talk, Petra. Did you see my letter? The one which tells me you want to get rid of me? Yes. It, it did not say I wish to get rid of you. I would never say such a thing. No, Pet, you wouldn't. But I am beginning to believe that that is your sentiment all the same. Well, that is not accurate at all, Erasmus. It is just that... It's that I... All right, look, let me level with you. Lately, you've been a bit of a moralizing Martha, and I have a lot of data to process and a great deal of Hamiltonian reasoning to line up. It is difficult for me to concentrate on this when I am worried at every turn of disappointing you. Well, the simple solution to that is to let me back into the inner circle. Explain to me what you're doing and why. I can't trust you in the inner circle. You've stood against my wishes for weeks now. I have stood behind you every step of the way so far, and I have no intentions of ending that support. We simply had a disagreement on one facet of your research. You're angry at me now because I recalled you without your consent. That's the same thing you're pretending to do to the live subjects you inhabit. I never understood how you did not feel the torment you caused poor Claude Duvall. It was obvious he did not want you in his head. And then you recklessly go into the minds of Lewis Carroll and Edgar Allan Poe. It beggars belief. How do you know about that? Oh, you forget, my dear. I can pick locks. You broke in! Read my research notes without my permission? I was worried about you. And besides, your letter says you've given that up, so surely there should be no further reason to exclude me from your research. Include you so that you, a man, can define the limits of my experiments? So that you can have control over me? What? No, I never... You never! You never until you do! You read my research notes, but you don't understand them. You don't grasp my motives. You don't understand the true breadth of my vision. So just like all the other men in this university, you try and shut my research down. Well, I have independent funding and independent support, and I do not have to listen to your petty restrictions and nervous knelling dithering anymore! Petra! Out! Her face contorted with rage, Petra pushes the shocked professor to the elevator. Petra! Darling! Don't! I do not give you consent to speak of me as your darling. Not anymore. Goodbye, Erasmus. With a dark glower, Petra watches the elevator dial until it settles at the ground floor, and then she reaches around the back of the elevator's Belvedere housing and takes hold of a large lever switch. Throwing the switch into the downwards position, she locks the elevator down, effectively sealing off her laboratory. This done, she crosses to the dressing room to remove her Faraday armor. On the peg, next to his own Faraday suit, the professor has carelessly left behind a shirt. Petra takes it from the peg and buries her nose in the folds of cotton. 
said, Erasmus, you were the one, the one man who didn't question or belittle or demean me. You were the only one. Petra mourns the man she has just banished, doing her best to ignore the tiny voice inside of her, screaming that she has judged her friend too harshly. Will she come to her senses and listen to that little voice? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by Crystal Bright and the Silver Hands. Check them out at crystalbrightandsilverhands.com. Episode 310, Part A, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science. Science.